Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello there, my name is Zach Twomley and you are about to listen to the latest installment of the Franco-Dutch War. It's a pretty interesting conflict and we here at When Diplomacy Fails have been covering it fairly extensively for the past few weeks. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, make sure to bring yourself up to speed by listening to the previous episodes. If you don't care either way and if you're a regular listener, well, it's good to have you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode. So what's going on in the world of When Diplomacy Fails? Well, things are looking up, things are going really well, and I've been very busy, my history friends. I've been very, very busy. All will be revealed soon enough, but you should know that from the 18th of May, which is the five-year birthday of this podcast, there is a very special thing coming your guys' way. I'm really excited about it, and I know you guys are going to really, really enjoy it. But in light of this, and in light of the wonderful stuff that's coming your way, I would be remiss if I did not remind you guys that When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. And if you would like to support this podcast, you can, of course, be fit, which won't cost you anything at all. And we all know what be fit stands for, so you don't need to be reminded yourself. So what will you get? Well, from $5 a month, you'll get access to the extra feed of the podcast, which essentially means you'll get the episodes that you would normally hear a week before everyone else. And you will get them free from ads such as these, and you will also get them free from Beef It Please and all that kind of thing. Not only that, but you'll also have access to an hour of extra content every month. Extra, hence the name of the feed, of course. At the moment, released to the extra feed right now, is an episode on the Balkan Wars, in case you didn't know. So if that sounds interesting to you, then you guys should, by all means, become a diplomat, which means you'll be paying $5 a month. And then it will all be yours. It'll also become more important as we go into the future because I have some pretty sweet projects planned. That again, the Patreon page for When Diplomacy Fails can be found by going to wdfpodcast.com, clicking on the Patreon banner, or going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Okay guys, we are ready to get going. I hope you enjoy this episode, it's a pretty good one. Welcome back to the war. So in the last episode, we saw how the tables seemed to be turning. By the middle of 1673, it was clear that the war was no longer a Franco-Dutch one alone, and that other powers were beginning to itch about the prospect of leaving the Anglo-French alliance to its own devices. In the case of the coalition composed largely of the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs and Brandenburg, as well as some other minor German princes, the war which the Dutch had somehow endured had taken on a new form. 
It was not the overwhelming deluge of French soldiers into the Netherlands. It was a tale of stubborn, at times apparently futile, resistance to the invader. The resistance had paid off because by the autumn of 1672, the French offensive had stagnated and the bulk of Louis' forces had been redirected to the Rhine to guard against the curiously undeclared war which seemed to be bubbling to the surface as Leopold, the Holy Roman Emperor, scrambled his support base, all the while keeping an eye on the Ottomans to the east. Marshal Turenne, Louis' right-hand man essentially in military terms, was ordered to sit tight for much of the rest of 1672, which as we saw infuriated him, and handed William of Orange a chance to sally forth and counter-attack. Though these campaigns along the River Meuse were unsuccessful in the late autumn of that year, they did demonstrate that the Dutch were by no means paralysed with the French presence, and that they were in fact more determined than ever, having apparently sorted affairs out at home, brutally and tragically I might add, to take the fight to the enemy. This put steel into the forces cautiously sent to prevent a total French takeover of their lands, and it made Louis XIV of France appear somewhat foolish, since it was clear by early 1673 that he had fundamentally underestimated both the Dutch determination to resist and the tenacity of Prince William, whom the Dutch now pinned their fortunes upon. As the year wore on, both sides claimed their share of successes. Turenne, as we saw, was able to pursue Frederick William of Brandenburg back home and force him out of the war, yet his rampant march across German lands provided the final straw for many of its rulers. By the end of summer, 1673, as we saw last time, the suggestive coalition had formalised their resolve against the Sun King, and it is from this tumultuous point in the conflict that we will now resume our narrative, as I take you to late summer, 1673. For war, you need three things. One, money. Two, money. Three, money. Raimondo Montecuccoli. frustrations and shortcomings of the Dutch campaign seem to have pushed Louis into a kind of corner, whereby direct action against a particular stronghold seemed like a better alternative to the drudgery of pursuing what little opportunities for glory remained in the Netherlands. This is generally the explanation historians use when explaining the massive investment made by the French in the besieging of the greatest of Dutch fortresses, Maastricht, in mid-June 1673. For over a year, Maastricht had resisted French attempts to seize it, and largely because it was seen as such an impregnable nut, Louis had skirted around it altogether in the opening phases of the invasion of the Netherlands over a year before, where once Louis had said on Maastricht, It has appeared to me so important for the reputation of my armies, only to begin my campaign by some brilliant feat, that I have considered an attack on Maastricht 
insufficient for the purpose. I have considered it more in accordance with my purpose and better calculated to enhance my prestige to attack simultaneously four places on the Rhine. I do not know the strength of these garrisons in these places, but we will do our best. Such statements were made at the onset of the invasion, when the enemy seemed brittle and the prospects for glory unlimited during the chaotic months of May and June 1672. These forts Louis mentioned were actually protecting the soft underbelly of the Republic, and after capturing them and crossing the Lesser Rhine, Louis would then be treated to a spectacle of complete and utter military supremacy for the remainder of the campaigning season, if not the year of 1672 full stop. Indeed, Louis had at least been correct about one thing, by passing Maastricht massively torpedoed Dutch hopes to resist, as much as it added to the apparent force of the invasion, not to mention the panic within the Dutch Republic itself. However, by the time a year had passed, the front had mostly stagnated. Holland was still mostly flooded, and enemies had emerged to challenge the French concentration across the Rhine, as well as in the Spanish Netherlands. In such a situation, the profoundly well-built and structured fortress of Maastricht, with its garrison of 6,000 under a confident commander assured of his importance to his master's war effort, had become a nuisance to the French, verging on a threat. Positioned as it was along the River Meuse, which French soldiers regularly followed to return to the front, Maastricht had become something of a hazard thanks to the resolute ambition and tenacity of its commander and the tendency of the French to treat that area in general as a defeated front. While technically speaking, Maastricht by June 1673 was in enemy territory, the Dutch never gave it up, recognising the importance of it, or at the very least its power, in delaying the enemy. Harbouring as it did numerous Dutch soldiers, the fortress had also greatly aided William in his previous daring sojourn along the Meuse, when he wrecked French offensive plans and handed quite an embarrassment to Louis. Although William hadn't captured anything during the course of this campaign and his offensive was technically a failure, the Prince of Orange knew he was playing a long game, and that such offensives were all important if the Republic was to outlast France. In such a game, the little boosts which such an offensive as his granted both his own countrymen and the potential allies of the Republic were invaluable, as Louis himself well appreciated. Neither Louis nor his commanders could afford to be distracted or so embarrassed again. Before the war widened, in other words, Maastricht would have to be taken. Thus it wasn't just because he searched for a consolation prize that Louis's forces assembled before Maastricht in mid-June. Louis would employ armies of peasants who were required to dig massive sprawling lines of circumvallation and contravallation. What do these mean, though? Well, just so we're all on the same page, this was a standard tactic of the besieger during the 17th century, and the Spanish and Dutch had used it endlessly during their 80 years' war against each other. Lines of circumvallation were essentially the first line of the siege. These were used to box the enemy in, and they signalled that he was trapped. They provided something for the besiegers to hide behind, in case the garrison launched sorties, and they also meant that the besieger could keep an eye on his enemy without having to worry too much about getting shot at. The lines of contravallation, on the other hand, were like an additional line of defence, and they were built as a second row of trenches behind the first lines. These served, essentially, to defend the besiegers against any potential allies of the besieged coming to attack them, and at times they represented a distinct fortress for the besieger in of themselves, depending on how long the siege lasted. The most famous example of these two lines being put into use was 
arguably Julius Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, where he besieged Elysia, a Gallic fortress, and was then made aware of Gallic reinforcements, so he built a wall around his own besieging fortresses. This bit of context actually tells us a lot about what Vauban was doing at Maastricht when the works began in June 1673. The lines of contravallation were built to protect French forces engaging in the siege, because Vauban fully expected, as did the Dutch garrison, that some relief force would have to be sent to save them and the symbolic Dutch fortress. Thus, the French got their peasant workers to build this double line to protect their rear, as they didn't want to be caught out. Such efforts, it should go without saying, took an incredible amount of time and effort, particularly as the latest tactic, popularised by the Ottomans in fact, was to dig these lines in a zigzag formation, mainly so that there would be more places to hide from the besieged, but also so that no cannon or shot could be fired directly down the length of them. I know this podcast has never been about campaigning or sieges or armies or equipment, and that's not about to change, at least not unless you listen to the extra episodes that are to come for the podcast. But because so many fortresses changed hands over the next few years, and because siege engineering was a large part of the French stratagem during these years, I feel it is worth outlining a super brief description of how the work was carried out, if nothing else so that you can appreciate how difficult it was for the common soldier to capture a well-defended structure, and how grim and grinding the actual process was, especially if both sides were well-matched, as they often were. It should be added, though, that by and large the attackers normally won the day, and that the garrison surrendered so that it could be allowed out with the flags waving, rather than holding on to the bitter end. Military technology by this point, you see, had so outpaced the ability of the defenders to resist, that a well-provisioned, well-prepared and determined besieger could generally expect to win without too much losses incurred once he breached the walls. It was extremely rare, in other words, for a besieged army to fight to the end, and affairs very rarely reached that point, and it was rare even for the army to retreat into the better-defended citadel. In an era when many fortresses existed to be defended, both besieger and besieged preferred to fight another day, and thus, as long as one made a show of resisting, which will become important later, he could expect to not be chastised by his master for surrendering. Incidentally, the biggest challenge for Vauban at Maastricht seemed to be reining in his soldiers so that they didn't needlessly sacrifice themselves through their impatience with his slow, steady, but also tried and tested tactics. It shouldn't surprise us to learn that Frenchmen were eager to acquire some glory for themselves, as their sovereign had so regularly taught them the sanctity of the pursuit of glory, and they were, after all, in this very place because of his lusting after it. Vauban himself commented on the dangers of the siege, saying, I know of nothing more difficult to surmount than the outer edge of the ditches, the counterscarp. Whether you take it at the first attempt or not, the effort is certain to entail heavy losses, especially if you fail, which happens all too often. It is often the case that in the siege of a fortress that puts up a resistance, you lose three times as many people in taking the counterscarp as you do from then until the final reduction of the place. The loss is always a result of excessive haste, at the cost of our best troops, who perish miserably on such occasions. The tactic for taking a fortress was not much more refined than attacking out from the trenches, engaging with the garrison if they sent men out to defend, or undermining the walls in some fashion if the coast was clear. 
Either way, it involved stepping into the 17th century version of No Man's Land, what Vauban here called the counterscarp, but what we would essentially term the open ground in between the besiegers' lines of circumvallation and the settlement's walls. Here, an attacker was at the mercy of the defender's skill, tenacity, and experience, and the garrison of Maastricht possessed all these in spades. Numerous casualties were taken on by the French, who in this case possessed an army over 40,000 strong by the time the attacks against Maastricht began. Among these soldiers were non-French men of service as well. These included Germans, but also Englishmen loaned by Charles II for a hefty price to his cousin. Within the ranks, it may interest you to learn, was one John Churchill. Yes, this is the John Churchill who would later become the Duke of Marlborough and the bugbear of the French during the other two great wars of Louis' reign, but in the first one, he fought on Louis' side. Who was he regularly alongside during this siege? None other than a certain Claude-Louis Hector de Villars, who at this stage was a cavalryman seeking his fortune like so many others. History buffs will recognize Villars as the virtual savior of France during the twilight. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Years of the War of the Spanish Succession, but they should also know him as the marshal charged with providing a desperate defence to Marlborough at the Battle of Malplaquet in 1709. So yes, these future enemies on the field, so iconic in their own right, were during this time fighting side by side in the early stages of their respective careers. Just one more reason I find this era so freaking fascinating. Despite its great position and hearty garrison, William of Orange knew full well that he couldn't afford to relieve Maastricht with the limited resources at his disposal. In his mind, Maastricht was meant to provide a foil to Louis' armies, or at the very least a distraction, and it was serving its latter purpose well. If this seems cold and calculating on the part of William, we should remember that in choosing not to relieve Maastricht, he was supported and urged in this direction by his allies. There was absolutely no suggestion, not even from the garrison of Maastricht themselves, that these men were being abandoned. Under no circumstances would the garrison of Maastricht be cut down or imprisoned. Instead, they were expected to be let walk free into the next awaiting Dutch fortress or town, whereupon their service would be noted and they would be placed back into the army's employ once more. 
So it was that on the 1st of July the commander of Maastricht surrendered, and he was permitted, as expected, to march out of the fortress with his comrades, flags waving and trumpets playing. The futility of this gesture, when it was well expected that these soldiers would soon be fighting against the French again, was not lost on the French or Louis XIV. Yet as we said, this was an era, and above all a region in Europe, where possession of fortresses was arguably more important than the possession of large armies in the field. This of course contradicts what we also know about the likelihood of success a besieging army enjoyed when attacking such a fortress, but this was outweighed by the ability of the defender to call upon reinforcements, which, it was believed, was easier to do when one commands a great deal of other fortresses. Thus the Dutch lost Maastricht and Louis could claim a grand victory, thereafter hyping it up as much as possible, perhaps in an effort to distract his people from the general futility of capturing such a place. Ever since the campaign in Holland had bogged down, Louis had been mindful that France needed a triumph it could point to, in order to justify the grand claims to military glory, let alone the massive expenses, which its king so clamoured after and had spent. He would have been far happier to have been dining in The Hague by this point with his English cousin, as the original war plans had allowed for. However, Maastricht, as far as consolation prizes go, was still an impressive feat of arms, and one which would surely bolster his allies and concern the growing band of enemies, which threatened to move against him. But if Louis supposed that by capturing Maastricht he would preempt the growth of an anti-French coalition, he would have been mightily disappointed. William took the loss mostly in his stride, excepting from the moment that the French bypassed it in the early stages of the war that Maastricht would likely become a casualty of the Dutch resistance, but hoping that such a sacrifice would bring about greater rewards. And in this, William was right. Unfazed by the Dutch loss, Madrid and Vienna formalised their alliance and commitments to one another in August 1673 under an offensive and defensive alliance, while both the Holy Roman Emperor and the Governor of the Spanish Netherlands promised immediate aid. Charles of Lorraine, that dispossessed duke that Louis had forced out in the years before, then threw his lot in, an act which roused his people, under the French yoke since his ejection by Louis in 1671, while even the recently defeated elector of Brandenburg now seemed itchy to re-enter the war. Curiously, in spite of their declarations to one another, the coalition members had yet to make the declarations which mattered against France. Count Monterey, the governor of the Spanish Netherlands, had spent many months bolstering his defences, and actually lent the Dutch some soldiers, as per a defensive pact signed in spring 1672. Leopold I was, for his part, stuck between fearing an Ottoman advance and anticipating the death of Carlos II of Spain, both of which were events that required French cooperation, if the Habsburg interest was not to be overwhelmed. For the moment, his pro- and anti-French advisers continued to squabble over the details of their Spanish agreements, and whether the veteran imperial commander, Raimondo Montecuccoli, was in fact permitted to campaign against him. These squabbles were mostly solved thanks to the fact that, after Marshal Turenne's success in driving the elector of Brandenburg out of the war, Montecuccoli was put forward as the imperial representative of the Austrian Habsburg war effort, and left Vienna with an army of 25,000 men, while the anti-French camp were in the ascendancy in Leopold's court throughout the early summer of 1673. Montecuccoli's task was to link up with William, but to achieve this he would have to first bypass the army under Turenne's command. 
John A. Lynn, always reliable for simplifying the nitty-gritty of military details and essentially serving as our Bible for this whole period, summarised the campaigning season of 1673 thus. From August through November, Turenne and Montecuccoli manoeuvred against one another in a game of march and countermarch, eventually won by Montecuccoli. His forces were better supplied, while the French, who lacked bread, resorted to pillage. Montecuccoli finally joined William at Bonn, where both armies besieged the city, and the French garrison capitulated on the 12th of November. Turenne then put his troops into winter quarters in Alsace and Germany. It was in the midst of this campaigning that Vienna seemed to have come down on the side of the anti-French camp. With Leopold concerned at his eastern flank, but now more determined than ever to make the imperial presence felt along the Rhine and for the sake of Madrid, which had risked it all in spite of the threat that French arms posed. With the war declared, there could be no going back. From the end of September 1673 then, France was officially at war with both branches of the Habsburg family, just like the old days. This meant two critical things, that the Dutch had outlasted the most trying portion of the war, and that the war would now take on a radically different shape. French arms could point to 1673 as a year of triumph, thanks to the seizure of Maastricht. But the fact remained that most of Europe had turned against France, the campaign of the Dutch was quietly abandoned, and the different fronts along the Rhine in the Spanish Netherlands and along the Pyrenees were opening up. As the first full year of war came to an end, Louis XIV may have wondered if it had all been worth it, a conflict launched for such apparently petulant reasons to acquire glory more than anything else, had ignited most of the continent against his kingdom, and even worse news was emerging with his sole ally across the Channel. Charles II was in dire straits by the time it was learned that both Vienna and Madrid had elected to make an alliance with one another, and separately with the Dutch, to be aimed wholly against France. There was much pressure to treat with this coalition in the face of such opposition, as the last thing Charles wanted or needed was a long war against continental powers with little chance of gain. His gamble for glory, much like Louis's, had evidently failed by the summer of 1673, but it hadn't been for want of trying. As was the English custom, the main thrust of its offensive against the Dutch came at sea, when the English forces fought and lost the Battle of the Texel on the 21st of August 1673. On paper, the results tell little tales, aside from the curious fact that 2,000 of the 3,000 lives lost on the day were those of the Anglo-French, and that not a single ship was lost on either side. The real story, though, in the Dutch mind, was that attempts to prepare the way for a landing of British soldiers in their republic had been repelled, and on top of this, an injection of funds through the safe arrival of a much-needed spice fleet immediately after the battle massively boosted both the morale, and of course the coffers, of the Netherlands. Admiral de Ruyter had initially been hesitant to risk his force, outnumbered and outclassed as he was by larger Anglo-French vessels. However, Prince William, who was also Admiral General of the Dutch Republic, recognised the importance of the aforementioned spice fleet, and so de Ruyter, along with Cornelius Trump as his second, were encouraged to be more aggressive. Crucially for the course of the battle, and arguably the course of the war, de Ruyter believed that he could separate the two Allied squadrons, and in this he was correct. Unbeknownst to the British Admiral on the scene, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, Louis had given orders to the French Admiral not to overtly risk his fleet, and thus when the French became separated through the initial Dutch attack, 
they made little effort themselves to resume the fight. This, at least, was how the English later saw and reported the day's events, but the fact that the Dutch had the weather gauge also helped their cause. With the French out, it turned into a familiar scene of the two naval rivals pulverising one another. With one of the English seconds dead, the joint fleet withdrew, handing a tactical victory to the Dutch and sowing seeds of bitter anti-French opinion amongst both the sailors, the people, and, soon, the politicians. It has to be said that the last thing Charles could afford was for the country to become even more anti-French, but the pre-existing Francophobia of the British didn't help matters. This trend only worsened Britain's prospects in the war, as the historian C.R. Boxer noted, The failure of the naval campaign in the summer of 1673 finally crystallised the disillusionment of the great majority of English men of all parties with the war. Rightly or wrongly, the blame for this failure was placed on the French squadron, which was alleged to have left the English in the lurch by deliberately ignoring Prince Rupert's signals at the Battle of the Texel. Who will make the English love the French? asked Pope Pius II despairingly, when vainly trying to unite Western Christendom against the Turks after the fall of Constantinople in the 15th century, and the same thought must often have occurred to Charles II in the autumn of 1673. Anti-French feeling, always latent among the xenophobic Anglo-Saxons, became quite hysterical at this period, reinforced as it was by a pathological dread of popery, which was sharpened in its turn by the realisation that the Duke of York was a Roman Catholic. By now Charles had worn out the patience of his subjects. While they had initially looked on the war as an opportunity for booty, and some had valued an opportunity for revenge against the Dutch, this additional failure, coupled with the evident lack of return that the continuing war gave to them, sapped morale in Britain to its lowest point. I particularly liked the example of the courtier, Edward Verney, who began the war holding the traditionally patriotic views on the situation, but through a number of events, including the initial Dutch defeats and incredible French advance, became steadily more anti-French. His conversion was examined by the historian Stephen Pincus in his article The Shift in English Popular Sentiment from Anti-Dutch to Anti-French in the 1670s, wherein Pincus writes that Mr. Verney now had nothing but praise for the Dutch, comparing them to the courageous Romans facing Hannibal at their gates. By contrast, he hoped that the one-time grand monarch, so glorious, so opulent, so magnificent, so powerful, so formidable, would become a poor little ridiculous gnat. Nevertheless, Verney was well aware of the reality of French power. For this reason, he thought that it was the interest of all of Christendom to chase the French from the Low Countries. At home, Edmund explained to his father, All our great danger of losing our property, liberty and privileges and laws stemmed from Louis XIV's political support. By aiding the French king against the Dutch, Verney concluded, the English gained neither honour nor profit nor security, but ran the risk of being eaten by him last, which was the ordinary reward of crazy men. Increasingly, more statesmen came to see the war as a distraction from the true business, which warranted Britain's attention. If anything, war should come against France, not the Dutch. So it was that the historian Pincus concluded, Although different people perceived the danger from France at different times and expressed their concerns with varying degrees of sophistication, the events of the Third Anglo-Dutch War convinced most moderates that the most serious aspirant to the universal monarchy and the greatest threat to English political culture was Louis XIV. 
People were not disillusioned with the war because it was a military disaster. They felt, rather, that it was manifestly contrary to England's interest. The English people not only called for the end of an economically disruptive war, but also for a diplomatic and ideological realignment. After having leapt into the war, following years of treacherous diplomacy, barefaced lies to his peers and allies, and a heavy amount of ambitious dreaming, Charles II was now coming around to the fact that the entire venture, and all that it had cost him, had been an abject failure. With war clouds threatening to turn what had once seemed like such an attractive campaign into a full-blown European war, it remained to be seen how the gambling man in Britain would play his cards. Would he buckle under pressure or find the trump card to rally his nation against that of his nephew? Would, indeed, his people tolerate him if the war continued? All of these questions were turning in the mind of Charles II, as the first full year of war ended, and 1673 became 1674. Okay then guys, before we get out of here, it's only right that we run down the new patrons for this week. A small reminder as well, because I know that a good few patrons of you have arrived, and that's great because you're listening to the extra feed now, but if you'd like to take part in some of the things that are actually going on on the Patreon page, then I would really encourage you guys to. I'd also encourage you guys to check your Patreon messages, which if you didn't realise, you actually get some. In fact, you've probably gotten one from me to say thank you, so reply to me because I'm all alone, and it's nice when people reply to my message of thanks. Other than that... Maybe take part in the polls that are going on there. Do you want the Polish miniseries to be on the 18th century? Please say you do, because it's getting to the point now. It's only a few days away, so if you change your minds and decide you want it on, like, the 1400s, I'm screwed! Actually, I don't think the 1400s are an option. Anyway, keep it to the 18th century, because democracy blows, and I want to keep it a certain way, and, yeah, ringing for the win. Anyway, thanks very much for becoming patrons, guys. The new patrons for this week are... David L, Diplomat, Andrew T, Diplomat, Daniel P, Diplomat, Andrew P, Embassy Intern, Andrew W, Diplomat, and Bob K, Diplomat. Okay guys, that is the patrons for this week. This is being recorded on Saturday, so if you happen to patronise me on Sunday, thanks very much, but your name will be read out next week. Alrighty guys, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 